Our scripture reading this evening is from Isaiah chapter 49, verses 8 through 17. And my text this evening, with God's help, I wish to expound to you verses 8 through 17. Hear the word of God. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, in a day of salvation have I helped thee. And I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. That thou mayest say to the prisoners, go forth. To them that are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them, For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of waters shall he guide them. And I will make all my mountains a way, and my highways shall be exalted. Behold, these shall come from far, and lo, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinem. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth. And break forth into singing, O mountains. For the Lord hath comforted his people, and will have mercy upon his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her sucking child? That she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Thy children shall make haste. Thy destroyers and they that made thee waste shall go forth of thee. May God bless the reading of his sacred word. Our theme this evening, with God's help, is God's loving covenant promises. God's loving covenant promises. And we'll see those promises um, first doubted by his afflicted people. Second, unequaled by a mother's love. And third, guaranteed by God's reassurance, reassuring promises. So God's loving covenant promises, doubted by his afflicted Zion, unequaled by a mother's love, guaranteed by reassuring promises. Our text tonight is taken from the second part of the book of Isaiah. As you know, this book is usually divided into chapters 1 through 39 as one section and 40 through 66 another section the last section often properly being called the book of comfort it's the last section in particular that Augustine said methinks Isaiah wrote not a prophecy but a gospel and stood beneath the cross as he wrote. 
There's just so much comfort in chapters 40 through 66. So much Christology. So much uh, cross-shaped prophecy that it's as if Isaiah was actually there. What Isaiah is doing in this second half of the book is he's talking about the time when Judah would go into exile in distant Babylon. They weren't there yet, but he prophesied that they soon would be there because of their disobedience to God in his ways. But remarkably, Isaiah is given wonderful material, wonderful promises to pass on to the people of Judah for the coming day when they would be in exile. God promises a great things in these chapters. He promises to comfort his afflicted Zion with a great deliverance. And in verses 8 through 13 of this chapter, it's really nothing but a series of promises in which Isaiah calls heaven and earth and the mountains to rejoice because of the great mercies of God. God directs Isaiah to pronounce rich promises to his needy people, his needy Zion. Sadly, however, Zion responds, verse 14, picking up at the beginning of our text, but the Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Well, it seems like God's promises are falling on deaf ears. And that can be true in our lives also at times, can it not? When things seem to go against us, when we seem to be exiled from communion and the presence of God, and the promises of God can fall upon us or around us as if we have deaf ears and we can't grasp them as we would and we end up wallowing like the psalmist was prone to do in Psalm 43 and we get discouraged and despondent and we cry out with Zion, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. Now, the first question we need to deal with in this context is what exactly does God mean by Zion? We need to understand who God's talking to here if we're going to grasp the comfort of this passage for our own souls tonight. Now, that's not an easy question to answer because the word Zion in the Old Testament and New Testament actually changed meanings, enlarged meanings, I should say, five times. First, when we meet the word Zion in the Bible, it appears as one of the names of the Jebusite fortress conquered by David. And that was an 11-acre piece of real estate in southeast Jerusalem. Second, later on, in the, under Solomon's reign, the word Zion came to include the temple 
and the king's palace. In fact, the, in, the area of the temple became the primary meaning of the word Zion. And then thirdly, especially in the Psalms, Zion developed into a reference of the entire city of Jerusalem where God would dwell with his people. And fourthly, in New Testament times, Zion came to refer to the invisible church of God worldwide, but especially uh, in Israel and then spread to the Gentiles as well. So the living church, the elect. And finally, fifthly, also in New Testament times, particularly in the book of Hebrews, Zion sometimes refers to heaven, the new Jerusalem, coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. That holy city, Hebrews 12, 22, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Now, is there a common theme here? That's my next question. Is there a common theme here that binds somehow all five of these meanings together? And I believe there is. Zion, Zion is the dwelling place of God in and through Jesus Christ, God's Emmanuel, in the midst of his people. Zion refers to God's presence in the midst of his own. God in our midst. That's the major theme of the word Zion. So just as the pillar of fire and cloud stood above the tabernacle during the wilderness wandering, so a cloud of glory filled the temple dedicated by Solomon. And we're told there that God's presence was in the midst of Zion. From Zion he would speak. In Psalms 78 and 132, we are told that the Lord loves Zion and chooses Zion and delights to dwell in the midst of Zion. In Psalms 9 and 99, we're told he's present in the temple in Zion, enthroned above the cherubim. So, in the direct sense, you see, in our text, yes, there's a sense in which this refers to the temple and the city of Jerusalem. But it's particularly a symbol of God's presence in the midst of his people. There. And you see, that allows us, once we understand this, that allows us to understand Zion's complaint much more. Because Zion is going to be, that is the people of God, exiled. Away from Jerusalem. Away from the temple. Away from what they understood to be the presence of where God was. And therefore Zion is going to complain when she thinks about the temple. And Jerusalem lying in ruins. And the temple's walls leveled. And her palaces torn down. And the temple itself will be destroyed. Everything will be in a pit of pitiable sight. There will be no hope in sight, politically or seemingly religiously. And so we understand 
why Zion would cry out to God, my Lord has forsaken me. And my God has forgotten me. Everything is destroyed. That's perhaps how many, many Ukrainians are feel, Ukrainian Christians are feeling right now, in essence. What's going to happen to our land? Has God forgotten us? God is intervening, it seems, in wonderful ways in the last few days, surprising ways. But if you're a Ukrainian Christian right now and you're hearing bombs over your head by the hour or by the minute, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to cling to God. It's hard to cling to his promises. Where is the glory of Israel? That's what Zion's going to say in distant Babylon. They're going to hang their, their harps on the willows. They're going to weep by the riverside, we're told in the prophets. Where is the glory of Israel? Or more, perhaps, where is the glory of Israel's God? How could rich promises of the past be embraced at such a time when it seems there is no future? Forsaken. Forgotten. Have you ever felt that way? In times of trouble? That God just doesn't see you? Or even worse, doesn't seem to care? In the original Hebrew, the first verb here, forsaken, suggests an outward abandonment. Outwardly, maybe there's sickness, or maybe there's a poverty, or in this case there will be exile, and they have to leave their homes. The second word, forgotten, in Hebrew has the sense of an inward forsaking, that you can't lay hold of God in your heart, that your prayers don't seem to go above the ceiling. That there seems to be a disconnect between God and you. So Zion feels utterly, is going to feel utterly neglected within and without while in distant Babylon. They're going to feel like Job. Oh, that I knew where I might find God. Now, Zion's complaint may be justifiable from a human perspective. It is pretty grim to be exiled and have your temple destroyed and the walls crashed and see nothing but rubble and destruction. But you see, God is saying, God is saying in this chapter and those that surround it, that he will not abandon his Zion. And because his Zion believes what God says, these doubts are not justifiable. Humanly, yes. When you look to the human reasonableness of doubt, rather than to the divine unreasonableness of doubt, you can understand Zion. But you see, what God is saying in these verses through Isaiah is, why don't you trust me? I'm your Lord. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Look at verse 13. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, 
For the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. But, Zion said, we can't see that. We look at all the things around us and we say, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. Now, there's something good. Don't misunderstand me. There's definitely something good in Zion's complaint. Because Zion is longing for her God. She's missing the Lord. That's a good thing. Her faith is at a low ebb, but her love for her God is not gone. And you see, that's where sometimes God's people can be still today. When you're in affliction, or you're oppressed, by enemies within or enemies outside of you. You're suffering misery and distress. Your trials seem to come in like waves of the ocean, one after another. You say, how much can I take? Your doubts and your fears are multiplied. You say with the psalmist as we read, where is now thy God? It's so understandable at that point that you can't lay hold of the promises of God. You... You fear that you've sinned too much or the circumstances are, are too grim or, or you're so small compared to the majesty of God. Why would he pay any attention to you? you? You feel like you're being deserted. You feel like there's just too many trials. You feel like Naomi, call me Merah, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Or like Job. Or, or you feel like the psalmist, has God forgotten to be kind? Shall I his presence faithless find? For me shall wrath henceforth replace his tender mercies, and his grace. Puritan Matthew Henry put it this way, unbelievers in their presumption to say, say God has forsaken the earth and has forgotten their sins. Weak believers in their despondency are ready to say God has forsaken his church and forgotten the sorrows of his people. So what does God do now? How does God respond to this but of Zion in verse 14? He's been listing in six verses in a row all these precious promises. He breaks out in verse 13 and says, Zion, you should be singing even in distant Babylon because I will answer all your cries. I will be with you. I am Jehovah, the Yahweh, the Lord God, the faithful one who will not forsake you and not abandon you. And immediately Zion responds, but the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. Now, you might think that God will say at this point, I am tired of dealing with the unbelief of Zion. Don't you believe in me anymore? I will pour out my wrath upon you. You're resisting my promises. You're not trusting my word. You're done, Zion. I'm going to break covenant with you. God would have every right to do that. But instead, what is so amazing in verses 15 through 17 is that God pours more promises on Zion and bigger promises, more profound promises that are absolutely stunning. Showing us the gracious character of God. Showing us that God has compassion upon his Zion. 
and that he will never forsake the work of his own hands. Now the first promise, verse 15, is a remarkable promise that is so picturesque. God says, can a woman forget her sucking child? The original Hebrew means a baby that she's feeding, but is also sick. An ill, breastfeeding baby. Can a woman forget, a mother forget, such a child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, even if they forget, and they may forget, yet will not I forget thee. What a promise. You know, a mother's love is something very special. If you're a father, you know what I mean. If you stood by the birth of your child, and uh, especially in that sacred moment, I call it a sacred moment because it is, when the doctor or the nurse lifts up that baby to your wife, and you see your wife bond with that baby, it's just amazing. And you realize that you're standing outside of the inner circle. And there's just incredible maternal love right after such pain. A mother's love is astonishing. It's a great gift of God. She's tender. She's caring. She's overflowing with love. Free love. Unbought love. Unselfish love. She constantly cares for that baby. Through the night, night after night, she gets up to feed the baby. The baby is like it's part of herself. Matthew Henry says, For it is her own, a part of herself, and very lately one with her. Her own physical needs will soon be put her in mind of it if she should forget her child for very long. Well, mother is always aware, always aware of where her baby is. Her baby is not out of her thoughts for a minute. Day and night, she's ready to wait on this little one. Her care, her time, her energy, her love, her very life is all spent in feeding, cleaning, nourishing, calming her child. I've had the privilege of being a pastor many years. and <laughs> I was talking, yesterday I was holding a baby and we were trying to figure out how many babies I held over the last 40-some years. It's got to be about a thousand and we talk to a lot of mothers too. It, you know, it's just amazing how a mother will tell you, especially a first-time mom, say, it's just, it's a lot of work, but it's wonderful. It's more work than I thought, but it's wonderful. There's just this amazing love. Robert Murray McShane said, you must break to pieces the mother's heart before you can change her love to her child. Now, how is it possible that a mother could forget her child when that child needs her the most? That she should not have compassion on the fruit of her womb? When a child is sick, the mother is sick. I still remember as a little boy, my mother saying to me one day, I felt pretty sick, stayed home from school, and she said to me, I wish I could be sick instead of you. <laughs> I remember that. All these years later, because I thought, wow, I, I can't say that about anybody. Only a mother seems to be able to say that. Give me your sickness. But God says, 
even when a mother forgets. It's so unnatural for a mother to forget that it can make headlines of a newspaper. Isn't that true? Mother abandons child. It's shocking. In Sacramento, California, today, if you go to the major hospital, I, I was there. I was doing a conference and somebody got very ill, went to the hospital. He asked me to go along to minister to the person. I said, sure. He pulled up into the emergency room and there was like a, a mailbox, I thought it was. Because it was like a handle. You could pull it out. You could put something inside. But oddly, there was a baby on the mailbox. I, I, I didn't know what that meant. So I said to the driver, what does that mean? Why is that baby on that mailbox? Well, he said it's kind of sad, but if a mother doesn't want her child anymore, she can drive up into this emergency lane at the hospital. She can step out. She can take her baby, pull open the box, lay the baby inside, shut the box, and the baby will roll into a basket. She can drive away. She can abandon her baby. But this... This means that she doesn't have to abandon her baby somewhere where the baby will die. The hospital will take care. So it's a service to the community for mothers who abandon their babies. It kind of like takes your breath away. Picturing a mother driving up there and laying a baby. Oh, you, 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 it blows your mind away. Yay, they may forget. But I will not forget thee. So you see what God is saying. It's very unusual when the mother forgets her baby. But my love is, is more consistent. It is impossible for me to forget my child. Because I have sent my son to die for that child. I forsook my son that I would never, so that I would never forsake you. As rare as it is for a mother to forsake her child, it is even rarer for me. Well, it's impossible for me to forsake any one of my children because I've sent my son to die for them. And for me to forsake my child and forget my child it's for me to unguard myself as God. It's for me to be unfaithful to my own character. It's for me to deny my own son whom I've loved with an everlasting love. This is impossible. You see, God is saying, my love, I promise you, Zion, even though the walls are destroyed in the temple even though you're exiled in Babylon because of your own sin. But I promise you that I will not forget you even there. In the midst of your unworthiness. Because I've loved thee with an everlasting love. So my love is superlative. My love is perfect. My love is greater than a mother's love. A mother wraps her arms around her child frequently for a few short years, but my everlasting arms are always around my Zion. Whether they see it or feel it or not. A mother nourishes a child for some time with food the Lord miraculously provides, but the Lord is himself the bread enough and to spare in his father's house forever. Mother clothes her child with natural clothing, 
but the Lord clothes his Zion with spiritual garments of salvation. A mother prays for a blessing upon her child, but the Lord's prayers are always effectual. A mother seems unwearied in caring for a child in distress, but even she gets tired. But the Lord is unwearied in nurturing distressed souls, for he never sleeps and he never slumbers. Here the Lord compares Zion to a little baby, feeble and weak, afflicted in distress and misery, to a child that is in dire need of a mother's care. But you see, God says, my love is even more inalienable than a mother's love. Even if a mother disowns her needy child, I shall not disown thee. Zion, you are wrong. I will never forsake you. And I will never forget you. It is impossible for me to be God and to forget my own. Because I have forsaken my son. For the sake of my own. And my son I love fully. The whole heart of the father goes out to the son. You know, 17 times in the Apostle John's writings, in the gospel, in the epistles, he says something like this, the father loves the son. Everything in and about Jesus receives the infinite love of the father. And what God is saying is because of the love he has for his own son, who suffered and died for his Zion. It is impossible for him to separate his people from his son. Impossible for him to forsake them because he's forsaken his son. And because he loves his people with the same love with which he loved his only begotten son. Which is the most staggering thought, I think, sometimes in the whole Bible. Jesus prayed it himself in John 17 in that sacred high priestly prayer. He said, I pray, Father, that the same love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them. And it's impossible for Jesus' prayers not to be answered. Isn't that true? Dear believer, we read in one of the minor prophets, Zephaniah, that the Father loves you so much that he rejoices over you with singing. He breaks out into song when he thinks of you. He loves you in Jesus Christ with an absolutely rock-solid love because he loves you with some of that same love that he pours upon his only begotten Son. He's saying here, how can I forget what I love fully? I fully love my son. And in him, I fully love my elect church. And I sent my son to endure a double obedience. Obedience that we call passive obedience, from the Latin word passio, suffering obedience, to pay for all of your sins. But I also sent my son to active obedience, to actively obey the law, to love, to love God above all, to love his neighbors himself, to live perfectly to all Ten Commandments, all 33 years of his life, so that through that active obedience and that passive obedience, which he didn't need to do to confirm who he was, 
But he did, out of pure love, in accord with his Father's will, to be a substitute for his people, so that when they believe in him alone for salvation, all the hell they deserve is imputed to him, and all the righteousness he's earned with his double obedience is imputed to them, so that we come into the inner circle of the love between the Father and the Son, because of the work of the Son on our behalf. That's the gospel. That's staggering, don't you think? That's good news. The best news the world has ever heard. God covenants with his son that he will give him all his people that he's determined to give him from eternity past. The son covenants with the father to come and to do that double obedience. The two things that you can never do for yourself that must be done for you. Perfect obedience to the law to inherit eternal life. And the sacrifice of death of a perfect God-man so that you could have your sins wiped away by this glorious Savior. And never be forgotten. Never be forsaken. Wow. That's enough. That should be enough for everyone. We don't need any more promises than that. No, God says, Zion, I'm going to give you some more promises. Which is my third thought. I'm going to guarantee this. I'm going to seal this to you. I'm going to underline it. I'm going to reassure you. So here come three more promises. Verse 16. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. What in the world does that mean? Well, it was an ancient custom for people when they were in exile that if they didn't want to be absorbed into the other culture, and don't forget, the Babylonians wanted to make those from Judah to be thoroughgoing Babylonians. They had to forget their God. They had to forget their customs. They had to change their names. They had to change their clothing. They wanted them to be thoroughgoing Babylonians. Well, it was an ancient custom that people would draw something on the palms of their hands. Most of the people worked out in the fields. And while they were working, they could look at the palms of their hands and remember their country. And that was true of Judah as well. Many people would draw the walls of Jerusalem on the palms of their hands. So they wouldn't forget Jerusalem. They wouldn't forget Zion, the presence of God in Jerusalem. And so they would draw it with indigo, a blue-colored paint, and once in a while, they have to redraw it because the paint would gradually rub off. But they wanted to remember. They wanted to remember. Some people would often draw a loved one's face if they were separated. Or whatever it might be. And so what God does is he uses this custom. And he says, Zion, I don't just draw you on the palms of my hand. 
with erasable paint. I engrave you, engrave you in the palms of my hands. It's a, it's a reference. It's a, it's a prophecy of the sufferings of the Son. Remember when he rose from the dead, he said, you doubt who I am. Here, here's my hands. Look at my hands. Look at the, the marks, the engravements of my love for you. I have graven you upon the palms of my hands. It's a testimony. It's a promise of God's unerasable, sovereign grace. Everything is here. Every word of this promise is rich. Sovereign love. I have. I have. No reason in you. Eternal love. I have. I have from eternity past to eternity future. I will not forsake you. Persevering love. I have graven you. I've, I've drilled down, as it were, into my very being. I've been ceaseless in loving you. Intimate love. I have engraven thee, that is you, singular, you personally. Powerful love. I have graven thee upon the palm of my hands. Just love. Palms were considered a sign of justice. I've, I've had my son pay, pay for the price of your salvation. A faithful love. Hands, working hands, uh, outreaching hands, helping hands, healing hands. The kind of hands that Jesus had, touching lepers in their heel. is a symbol of faithfulness. And then perfect love. I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Unerasably. What a promise. One of the poets of the 19th century put it this way. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. He's saying this promise is so sure. It's as if I'm in heaven now. Even while I'm still on earth. It's unbreakable. It's unbreakable. And then, another promise. Thy walls, 16b. Thy walls are continually before me. What in the world does that mean? Well, when I was young, I still remember reading this as a teenager and thinking... Well, walls are like problems, and so God's saying, I, I'm aware of your problems, and I'll help you in your problems. But that's not what it means. You see, Zion is in distant Babylon, and Zion sees no future. She looks back at Zion in Jerusalem, where God was said to dwell, and says, I feel forsaken here. In Babylon. And all I see in Jerusalem is rubbish. So there's no future. God says no. You see rubbish Zion. I see rebuilt walls. I will bring you back out of Babylon. I will bring you back to Jerusalem. I will enable you to rebuild the temple. To worship me again. You see rubbish. Which you deserve. Because you have sinned against me. But I see walls. 
Because my promises are such that I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. What a beautiful promise this is. I don't know if you've been through periods in your life where you've had great trouble, years that the locusts have eaten, huge problems, or maybe you yourself went off the tracks and lived for some years in a period of sin. It seemed like everything was destroyed, either destroyed from afflictions you endured outside of you, or from you crashing from the inside out and destroying yourself with your sin. But you see, the point is, God is almighty. God can rebuild his Zion out of a heap of rubbish. No matter how many Sambalots and Tobias mock about the heaps of rubbish, God sees walls. You know, I've had the privilege of being in Israel uh, three times now, hoping to go one more time next year, God willing. I love being there. I love, I love walking in the places where Jesus walked and meditating on what happened there. And the first time we came to Jerusalem, I was so excited to see Jerusalem, see the old walls. I had people tell me that Jerusalem just lies in a valley, and you can see all the walls at once, and it's true. And so we're on our way to see Jerusalem. And just as we come around the corner where that spot where you suddenly Jerusalem comes into view, there was an artist, and he was drawing a picture of the walls of Jerusalem. And I'll never forget that. We watched him for about 10 minutes. He would look at the walls, and he'd take his paintbrush, and he'd brush a stroke or two. Look at the walls, stroke or two. Look at the walls, a stroke or two. And we watched the painting develop. And you see, God is saying something like that. Zion, I have a plan for you, a plan for your life. I will rebuild all your walls, all that you've self-destructed. I'll, I'll rebuild it. And I'll make you, I'll turn you into a portrait of grace. By the time that painter was done, he had a beautiful painting of the walls of Jerusalem. God is saying, I've got that plan. And what I do is I look at my plan. And then in my providence, I, I send you a brush stroke or two. And a few brush strokes. Today, tomorrow, get painted onto the painting of your life. Until by the time you die, the painting is complete. Thy walls are before me. I'll turn you into a trophy of grace. I'll make you beautiful in my sight. I'll conform you to the image of my son. Through all of life's troubles, all the ups and downs. Trust me, Zion. I will make it well. I will make it well. And then the capstone. <laughs> the last promise, very briefly now. Thy children shall make haste. Verse 17. What a promise. You see, the children are going to be in distant, in distant Babylon. And can you imagine how an Israelite felt worshiping a covenant-keeping God? He felt very strongly about his children. 
And he wanted his children to have the same experience as he had. Going up to Jerusalem, worshiping God in his temple. But instead, they're going to be in distant Babylon. I remember my son saying to me at one point, and not too long ago, Dad, you know that the America that you, you talked to me about, you and Mom talked to me about when we were young, that America is not the same America now. We, we don't have the same experience you had. Because America is being trashed in so many ways. And that hurts, doesn't it? Even, even in a secular way, even, not even in a religious way necessarily, but, you know, God and America, those names were usually associated with each other when I grew up. It's not that way anymore. And it, it grieves you. You wish your children knew that by experience. So, so we can understand this concern of Zion here. But God says, that children shall make haste. I'll bring you back, but I'll also bring your children back. And they will run back to me. I will work in their hearts. I will, I will regenerate them. I will save them. And they shall run to the living God. I will build my church from the rising generation. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of God. Zion, don't despair. I haven't forsaken you. I haven't forgotten you or your children. So often people say, don't they? You hear it all the time. As a pastor, you hear it probably twice as much. Hey, I'm so worried about my children. What future is there? With all the mess, all the rubbish of this country. Think 10 years ago. Think about your parents. Maybe, maybe some, one of them has passed away or both of them in the last 10, 20 years. And what if they could come back today and see what's going on in America with all the distorted forms of sexuality? Just take that alone. and They would be astonished. <laughs> Is this America? God says, Thy children shall make haste. I'll take care of thy children. Your baptized sons and daughters shall be among them. They'll come back. They'll come back. The destroyers and they that made thee waste shall go forth from thee. I will deliver you from your persecutors, from your false teachers who subvert the faith and destroy the souls of your children. My promises are comprehensive. I'll love you more than a mother loves her child. I'll engrave in you on the palms of my hands. My, your, my, your walls... You, the rubbish you see, I'll turn them into walls to rebuild Zion. And I'll even take care of your children. These are God's loving covenant promises. Even in the midst of dark times, such as we're in at this very moment. But let me close this sermon with just a couple quick thoughts. I want to say to you, dear people of God, that we are far too prone to conclude that God has forsaken us and forgotten us when things seem to go wrong. And we're forgetting Hebrews 12, that when God afflicts us, he does so always as a father, not as a judge. Our sins have been paid for once for all in the Lord Jesus Christ.
And so when he chastens us as a father, he designs his glory in our good, Hebrews 12 says. So that though no affliction for the present seems to be joyous but grievous, afterward it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are exercised thereby. So God wants to exercise us. The, the Greek word there is gymnasium, from which we get gymnasium. God brings us into his gymnasium through our trials. He buffets us in our flabby parts. He makes us firm and fit. He conforms us more to the image of Christ for our good. Wherefore, lift up the hands that hang down and make a straight path for your knees, lest that which is laying be turned out of the way. God's chastenings are for your good. All things work together for good to them that love God. And so we respond. We should respond. We love him because he first loved us. Well, take that thought with you and use it as a paradigm for any afflictions you're going through right now. And the weight of those afflictions will be reduced considerably when you embed them in the paradigm and in the framework of the promises of Isaiah 49. And to you who are not saved, may I, uh, may I just give you two quick applications as I wrap up the sermon. The first is this. The first is actually a warning if you've never seen the rubbish of self, if you've never seen what a mess you can make of your own life, if you've never seen that you have ruined what you've needed and that you need the Lord most of all, may I say to you this evening, you can never, never, never know true joy, true meaning, true purpose, true fulfillment in life without the Lord Jesus Christ. To live without God is to live in a wasteland. Common grace, common mercies, or whatever you want to call it. You know, like two people being married and can have some common love for each other outside of Christ. Maybe on a scale of one to ten, maybe have a four marriage or a five. But you can't have, you can't have a nine or a ten. And it's that way in every area of life. It's only in Christ, only in Christ, that you can have real fulfillment, real joy. It's only when you know you're living in the consciousness of God's gracious mercies and presence that you can have a peace that passes understanding. Only when you live out of those promises will you have a wonderful and a beautiful life. Flee to God. Confess your sin. Repent before him. Ask him for grace that you can believe wholly in Christ and surrender at his feet and pledge allegiance to him. He alone can give you what you desperately need. And what you desperately need is himself in Jesus Christ. And finally, I want to give you an invitation. You've tasted a mother's love, even if you're not saved. You have a fondness for your mother, 
I would wager a guess that you wouldn't trade for anything in this world. But I'm here to tell you tonight, there's a much better love than the best love of the best mother in the entire world. This is a steady agape love, an unchangeable love, the love of Christ. And that love stands ready to receive rebels and sinners, just like you and I are by nature. So flee to Christ, the sure refuge for sinners, and welcome to the best love ever. And one day, as Jonathan Edwards said, to that land we call heaven, which he said could better be called the world of perfect love. Where God loves God, God loves his people, God loves the angels, his people love God, his people love the angels, where the angels love his people and the angels love God. It's, it's, it's a perfect world of spotless love. Love that passes all understanding. God can bless you with that love and your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. This is a generational love. God's loving covenant promises. Don't doubt them. Believe them. Rest in them persevere through them. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank thee for amazing love, amazing covenantal, loving promises. Help us to know them, to see them, to believe them, to embrace them, to live out of them, and to know thereby a joy that passes all understanding. And Lord, especially in a time like this, where there are so many fears, help us to rest, to rest in thy promises. Help us to, to experience Isaiah 26, verse 3, thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on thee. Lord, make everything well, <coughs> and keep us close to thee, we pray and save the lost, and magnify the joy of thy people in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank thee so much for thy promises. And we thank thee so much that they are all yea and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's respond in faith.